Feeding the monkey is the way we refer to those random ADHD thoughts that take over your mind when you're supposed to be paying attention to something important. Hello and welcome to Feeding the Monkey, Volume 14, uh, Organic Bananas in the Bermuda Triangle. Um, was gone for a couple of weeks. Um, I did I did make sure that you guys still had the monkey. We've got, um, let's see, last week we had cats think we're weird and crabs come in different sizes. And I just wanted to make sure that I point out it that uh, cats are probably right. We are pretty weird and that's what makes us cool. So, um, this week... This week. Oh, by the way, don't forget at the end of the episode, we will get the Natto update. The Natto update is very important. Natto, you remember, is the world's most disgusting material, and we uh, are going to make the monkey eat it. If uh, if there's 500 likes on the Facebook page, so I'll give you an update on that. So, uh, the Bermuda Triangle. Also known as the Devil's Triangle, ships and planes um, are lost even uh, even to this day. It's not all from the, the 1600s and the Mary Celeste. It's actually still going on. So what is the deal? Uh, I, I thought the best way to start this would be to uh, talk about the Bermuda Triangle itself. What is it? Where, where, where did it come from? Where's the name? Everything like that. So... Uh, the Bermuda Triangle, it is called after the island of Bermuda, a very popular tourist destination, ironically enough. The island of Bermuda is at one point of the triangle. The other two points are Miami, Florida in the United States and San Juan in Puerto Rico. And those, uh, the, the triangle formed between those three points is the Bermuda Triangle. Bermuda used to be known as the Isle of the Devil. That's why the little tiny island is opposed to calling it the, the Miami Triangle or the San Juan Triangle. Bermuda used to be known as the Isle of the Devil, and that's why the triangle is named for it. So, the fun stuff. The fun stuff with the Bermuda Triangle. Let's look at some historic incidents. And I really like the historic incidents. Some of them were pretty fascinating. Um, 1945. Let's start there. In 1945, Flight 19. And this was actually a movie. If you're if you're bored and you want to go see a movie about the Bermuda Triangle, rent Flight 19. I don't know if it's any good or not, but it exists. And so there you go. Five military planes disappeared. When the planes disappeared... The military looked for them and sent out a Martin Mariner, actually sent out two Martin Mariner flying boats. Uh, One of them also disappeared. So there were 14 men on Flight 19, and there were another 13 men on the boat, on the, uh, excuse me, the airplane that went to go find them. So that is a total of 27 people that just went missing uh, in 1945. Uh, 1918, this was another big one, a cargo ship, the USS Cyclops. It was a massive carrier ship. Uh, It had 300 crew members. It supplied fuel to the American fleet in World War I. The ship was manned with 309 people on board. It also had heavy cargo. 
Uh, it was last heard of from in Barbados, where it stopped to load more cargo before making the final stretch of a journey to Baltimore, Maryland. It never arrived in Maryland. There was a very large search looking for the Cyclops, followed the entire route looking for the debris, uh, the flotsam and jetsam. And as an aside, flotsam and jetsam are actually two different things. I don't remember which one is which. I'll have to make sure that I look it up. One of them is pieces of the ship, and one of them is, is uh, pieces of cargo. So flotsam and jetsam. They didn't find any. They thought that maybe it had been uh, sunk by German submarines, uh, World War I. Uh, no trace of the ship was ever found. And it was one of the largest losses of life uh, in any single incident in the Bermuda Triangle. In 1941, two of the Cyclops sister ships also disappeared while moving along the same route. 1818, let's get a little further back in time, 1818, about 100 years before the Cyclops, the Ellen Austin. It was a large American ship that frequently traveled between New York and London. On one of these trips, the ship came across an, another sailing vessel moving uh, along in the triangle. There was nobody on board. Sorry, we had a little bit of an unscheduled break there for a cat fight. Anyway, where was I? Uh, the Ellen Austin. The Ellen Austin transferred some of its crew to this other ship. Remember, as you may recall, before the unscheduled break, the Ellen Austin found a ship floating abandoned in the Bermuda Triangle. The, the Ellen Austin transferred some of its crew to the other ship because they thought, hey, we can scavenge this. Um, two days later, uh, the, the crew attempted to sail it next to the Ellen Austin to London. But two days later, they got uh, separated during a storm. And so the, uh, the Ellen Austin uh, continued on to London. On another trip, um, the Ellen Austin came across the other ship once again and sent crew to salvage it. Once again, no one was on board. Um, this time it disappeared several days later. Uh, 1948. A little bit after World War II, um, we had, uh, it was an airplane, the Tudor Star Tiger. Uh, it was flying 42 passengers, all naval officers. The radio operator received coordinates, and it was agreed the time of arrival in Bermuda should be 5 a.m. Um, sorry, hours after hours after uh, 5 a.m., however, the flight still hadn't arrived or made contact. A fleet of 26 aircraft searched for over five days and never found a trace of the Star Tiger or its crew. Uh, moving on to uh, flight uh, 1954, flight 441, a huge U.S. military-owned carrier aircraft. It was one of the most successful models of the time. Uh, it was only far, 400 miles from the coast inside the Bermuda Triangle when it simply vanished, um, becoming one of the largest mysteries uh, to date. The investigation included the plane, weather, pilot capabilities. Nothing was found that could point to how the plane disappeared. The plane's cargo included life rafts, which would have floated on the water if the plane broke apart. 
They would have been easily traceable, but they were not seen. And again, no flotsam, no jetsam. The plane was simply gone. The pilot never even sent an SOS call. So let's move into the 80s. It's Big Hair 80s, the SS Poet, a 522-foot bulk cargo carrier. It left from a port in Philadelphia bound for Egypt. The next routine radio transmission reporting its position was expected two days after it left the port, but no signal was ever received. Uh, It was uh, eventually deemed lost at sea, and like the others, no trace of it was ever found. In 2008, a Britain-Norman Islander, that's also known as a three-engine Trilander, took off from Santiago for New York on December 15th. 2008, around 3.30 p.m., there were 12 people on board. Uh, 35 minutes into the flight, the aircraft was no longer on the radar. A very large search operation was launched by U.S. Coast Guard's aircraft was never seen. Its last known location was about four miles west of West Caicos Island. In 2015, October 1st, the cargo ship SS El Faro uh, it became the worst victim of the Bermuda Triangle in over 30 years. This 790-foot ship departed Jacksonville, Florida. It was bound for Puerto Rico. It had 33 crew members on board um, and a large number of containers, trailers, and vehicles. It was a container ship. A tropical storm hundreds of miles away developed into a fierce hurricane dashed down towards El Faro and circled around the ship. Pretty soon there was no communications, um, uh, unbelievably, and having created so much havoc, the hurricane went back out uh, about the same way it came in. Um, After extensive search, now remember that the El Faro has been hit by a hurricane. So after several weeks of searching, the ship was finally located, sitting upright in one piece at a depth of about 15,000 feet in the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, Interestingly, not only was the ship not damaged after being through a hurricane, there was no trace of any crew members. So the ship was recovered, but there was nobody on board. So um, that's interesting Surely there are some some explanations. Actually, nobody really knows what causes the uh, issues in the Bermuda Triangle. They do tend to agree that they are that they are real. That there is uh, something different about this area of the ocean. I'm not sure exactly what it is. And, um, but there are some possible explanations that have been floated by various scientists. Number one, rogue waves. Um, this is something you remember, uh, Deadliest Catch from last week. I very much like that show. Um, about one in every 10,000 waves will be a rogue wave. And what will happen is that the uh, several regular normal size waves will merge together and become one very large wave. And they can be hundreds of feet in height. Uh, they can actually be high enough to knock a low-flying aircraft out of the sky. Um, the Gulf Stream 
and storm systems actually make rogue waves more common in the Triangle area and it's possible that rogue waves are sinking these ships. Um, another possible cause is methane. Methane deposits, methane hydrate specifically, is uh, uh, like a pocket of methane that's almost like uh, methane ice at the bottom of the ocean. These deposits can erupt um, uh, quite violently and um, spewing everything up in the air and everything else uh, for reference of how a uh, methane hydrate explosion can cause all kinds of damage. The Deepwater Horizon disaster was caused, the oil rig was drilling down and hit uh, an area of methyl hydrate, uh, exposing it and causing it to explode. Um, there's, of course, the good old-fashioned hurricanes. Hurricanes are uh, always an option. I remember the El Faro was hit by a hurricane. Hurricanes do travel across the area uh, of the Bermuda Triangle regularly. Um, hurricanes are another topic in and of themselves. They're pretty fascinating stories um, for another day. How about magnetic disturbances? So it's known that the comp compasses don't always point to north. They, point, they don't point to true north. They point to magnetic north. If you are in at the uh, magnetic pole, which is different from the north and south pole, if you're at the magnetic pole, um, the compass will just spin. If you are at the north pole or the south pole, a compass will point to the direction of, uh, of the pole, not, uh, not the, uh, of the real pole, not the pole where you're standing. They'll point to true north. Um, there are some mountains that are have a, have a lot of metal in them, a lot of magnetite in them. That's a rock. Magnetite is a rock. And in these areas, compasses are known to follow the mountains as you pass by uh, or spin, depending on if you are surrounded by the rocks and the magnetite. Compass disruption would make... Um, navigation in this area more difficult and could possibly account for ships going off course and um, and crashing. Um, these these next three are um, are a little more a little more interesting. Uh, we're going to start with gravitational mass cons. That means a a uh, a mass con is a difference in the uh, amount of mass and the amount of gravity that is that is pulling on you. Um, I will discuss those uh, at some point, but for right now, it, mass cons are everywhere. They're really prominent on the moon. Uh, in fact, so one of the things that the Apollo astronauts noticed in the 1960s was that when passing over these, like the Sea of Tranquility, that the spaceship would dip. There was more gravity in the Sea of Tranquility than there was in other areas of the moon. And it turns out that um, the reason that those seas are darker is because they are made of basalt. They're not made of regular moon rocks. They're made of basalt. And basalt is heavier, but that was not enough to account for the change in the flight patterns of satellites orbiting the, the moon. 
and these mass cons are actually this concentration of mass are actually the reason why and a, a uh, satellite going around the moon will only go around for about four years without interruption you have to come in with a radio signal and reposition it or the or it will crash in one of these areas um, a gravitational mass con could conceivably oh I wanted to mention that so because of the mass cons this is kinda cool you weigh a little less in the Swiss Alps than you lay in Paris because, uh, because gravity pulls slightly less in the Swiss Alps than in Paris France so if you're watching your weight you might want to go weigh yourself in the Alps although you might be tempted to eat more chocolate and then you would gain weight so it could just be a sunk cost there anyway a gravitational mass con could conceivably pull a ship that is already in the trough between two waves under so if a if a rogue wave has is to one side of you and is pulling the water out from under you and so you're in a trough in between two waves uh, a gravitational mass con could conceivably pull a ship down um, the mass cons the pull of them is more effective in air than in water because air is less dense meaning that a mass con that could pull a ship down could pull a low-flying aircraft down easier than it could that ship there were two other explanations proffered the first was aliens no it's not aliens I'm sorry it's it's not aliens I don't care what the ancient alien guy says it's not aliens um, and and finally a rip in the space-time continuum another topic to go with gravitational mass cons and I promise I will get to the space-time continuum it's not merely a Star Trek uh, sort of thing uh, Gene Roddenberry didn't make it up it's a real thing um, and the answer again uh, no this is so uh, in such an inconceivably small uh, chance that the earth that the that there's a rip in the space-time continuum that boats are slipping through although if you do watch the movie flight 19 I do think that they propose that as a reason why the planes disappeared they just went to a different time in space anyway so that's the Bermuda Triangle it's pretty interesting to me Exciting and so next up Mark on the Facebook page wants to know why uh, natural foods are so expensive when compared to their chemically laden genetically engineered mass grown pesticide covered counterparts just kidding. Uh, I wants to know why the why natural foods are so expensive compared to foods that are grown in what's called a conventional manner. Before I could answer that question, I needed to know what was a natural food, what counted as a natural food. I started by looking at a whole food site. Um, these they they were a little more militant than I would consider necessarily helpful. They defined a whole food as having one ingredient. An apple is a whole food. A processed food has more than one ingredient. So, I mean, it is technically. Your, your Brussels sprouts with bacon have been processed. They have been cooked. 
Um, but that was just a little too, it's like the aliens in the Bermuda Triangle. We're just going to go with a no on that. Natural and organic are not necessarily synonyms, but the easiest information to find is regarding um, organic foods. That's, of course, the, the ones that we notice the most in the stores, and that's the labels and the marketing and everything. Um, but So I am using organic as as a um, synonym for natural, even though I'm aware that it is an imperfect synonym. Uh, interestingly, though, um, flour and sugar are were the first processed foods um, being being taken from sugar beets, sugar cane, um, and you know, and, and wheat and, and oats and various grains, flour and sugar. Um, they didn't appear across the globe in a uniform manner. They moved from place to place as explorers from various civilizations went out and, you know, and, and they were colonizing and so forth. And they brought bread and sugar with them, flour and sugar with them. And interestingly, um, they refer to diseases like heart disease, hypertension, tooth decay, diabetes, and even some cancer. They're called the diseases of civilization. And the reason is because they were virtually non-existent until processed foods were, uh, usually flour and sugar, were introduced. So your metabolism is affected by the mere smell of food. In fact, your metabolism is affected even by uh, thinking about some foods. For instance, if I say sweet rolls, and you imagine a delicious sweet roll, you know, all wrapped up with its little cinnamon and butter filling, and it's got a little cream cheese icing on top, and it's so sweet and delicious, sweet rolls, uh, your insulin level goes up slightly just thinking about them. So, you're welcome. Uh, So, we're going to go with, and again, we're not talking about even necessarily fresh foods. Fresh foods are not frozen or preserved in any way. We are talking about, here we're going to talk about organic food, um, not non-processed or fresh or or whole or anything like that. We're just going to talk about organic food versus food uh, farmed by conventional methods. So, uh, to the core of the problem, why is it more expensive? There is actually a reason beyond marketing and the fancy name. Uh, interestingly enough, and that surprised me. I thought for sure that it was mostly a scam. So here are the ten reasons. Number one, no chemicals mean a lot more hands-on time. It takes more work to grow an organic crop because you're not using um, chemical pesticides, for instance, and so there's a lot more hands-on time with the crops. Uh, Number two is the economic reason. The demand is simply much higher than the supply. A lot more people want organic foods than there are organic foods available. Uh, Number three... Conventional farmers can use manure and they use all kinds of of nasty chemical stuff for fertilizers. Fertilizers for organic farmers, by definition, in order for them to have the organic certification, is uh, more expensive. Because of the size of the farms, this is reason number four, crop rotation and the size of the farms also make a difference in the cost. 
um, a conventional farm will generally use every every inch of space and they promote artificial growth with fertilizers etc whereas an organic farm they tend to rotate the crops around so that the minerals aren't the minerals and, and nutrients and so forth aren't taken out of the soil um, you leave a field fallow every year you only plant a field every other year uh, number six uh, no excuse me number five is the post-harvest handling cost basically uh, organic foods need to be kept separate uh, by federal law they need to be kept separate from content conventionally grown foods and that means that there is a higher handling cost because they're in special packaging and so forth number six is simply the cost of organic certification you don't just go to the FDA and tell them you're an organic farm and they believe you and send you on your merry way with your certificate. There's all kinds of qualifications and tests and constant ongoing monitoring and so forth that goes on with that organic certification. There is a number seven. There is a higher loss than conventional farms experience, uh, again, because there are fewer crops and they are not being grown with as much fertilizer and pesticides and so forth. So they are more susceptible to disease and, and so on. And basically, there is a much higher loss um, per, uh, per field against a conventional farm. The uh, in, especially in the case of animals, because you've got organic chicken and organic eggs and so forth, better living conditions for the animals cost more, and that just makes sense. They get a better diet, they have much more room to roam around and so forth. Uh, so that makes uh, that that cost needs to be figured into the cost of the product at the end. Uh, number nine, because organic food is not using chemical fertilizers, it grows more slowly. So time is money, and that's part of the reason why there is uh, a much higher demand than supply is organic food just grows more slowly. And interestingly, number 10 was interesting. The government has farm subsidies that it has set aside for farms in order to ensure that food production remains profitable because if food production is not profitable for the farmers then they're not going to be able to continue farming. Uh, farmers are, are humans and they have bills too. Um, government farm subsidies are much much less for organic farms. There are billions of federal dollars set aside to subsidize conventional farms, whereas there was in 2014 only 15 million in subsidies for organic farms. So organic farmers are getting less governmental help. Um, there are ways to offset the costs though. Just because a food is organic doesn't mean that it's better than a conventionally grown crop in some cases. And the organic uh, societies, people who, who create such things, they have two lists. They have the Clean 15 and the Dirty Dozen. So the Clean 15, these are foods that there is no reason to purchase in an organic state. They are just the same in the conventional as far as pesticides and, and other things that may be going on. These foods are perfectly fine. You don't need to buy them organically. You save some money here. So uh, you got your pens and pencils out? I'll wait. Okay, better got it. Onions, sweet corn, pineapples, 
avocado, asparagus, sweet peas, mangoes, eggplant, domestic cantaloupe, kiwi, cabbage, watermelon, sweet potatoes, yams, grapefruit, and mushrooms. And um, the show notes are always on the website at www.feedingthemonkey.com show notes. The the uh, the show notes are always available there, and these lists that I'm giving you are in the show notes as well as references and all the information you ever wanted to know about the Bermuda Triangle. Um, for every show, the show notes are down there. So that was the clean fifteen. Now let's talk the dirty dozen. The dirty dozen always buy these products organic. If they're not available in organic, don't buy them. So. Here we go. Strawberries, apples, nectarines, peaches, celery, grapes, cherries, spinach, tomatoes, tomatoes, sweet bell peppers, cherry tomatoes, cucumbers, hot peppers, and kales slash collard greens if you're one of the people eating that. Always buy that organic. And again, that list is on the site at www.feedingthemonkey.com um, slash, or actually just hit the show notes tab on the first page. The uh, website, again, for like the third time, I guess, www.feedingthemonkey.com all one word the website is where you will find the natto update we are about one-fifth of the way to the monkey having to eat the natto we really don't want to eat the natto there's a description of what the natto is there and there is an updated total i haven't looked at the updated total um, in a couple of days these are likes on the Facebook page. It was at around 115 the last time I checked, and I will be checking when I update the website. Also on the website, you can find links to listen to the podcast, to listen to previous podcasts, and to get some links for ADHD. That is the point of feeding the monkey, is to calm the ADHD monkeys for long enough that I can think about stuff. Um, and you will find some links there about alt, adult ADHD. It's a little different than it manifests in children. It's pretty interesting, I thought. Also, there is, again, all the show notes and all the episodes. And there is a contact link. You can reach me, uh, monkey at feedingthemonkey.com. Uh, you can write to me and request some uh, topics, things that you have wondered about, but you don't really have the time to, to uh, or the inclination to research, but you have wondered about them. Go ahead and drop me a line at monkey at feedingthemonkey.com, and I will get that email. You can also, on my Facebook page, it's Feeding the Monkey on the Facebook page, and you can, uh, one of our topics for today came from Facebook. You can leave me a message there uh, on the page. You can post a message and, and uh, ask your question or propose your topic, and I will get it, and I will look at it, and I will um, put it into an upcoming episode. 
Speaking of upcoming episodes, next week we're going to have a Thanksgiving special because what's the point of existing if we don't have a Thanksgiving special? And there'll be a Christmas special. There has to be. It's written in all the laws that if you try and do these podcasts and things that you absolutely have to have a Thanksgiving special and a, and a and a Christmas special. There are no dancing beagles in the Thanksgiving special, unfortunately. But I am going to look up what is the best way to cook a turkey. Uh, we're going to look at according to our, our famous current chefs. We may find out what Julia Child had to say about it and the art of French cooking. Uh, Gordon Ramsay, Alton Brown. We'll uh, see if uh, Bobby Flay has a recipe for cooking a turkey. I'm certain he does on a grill. We're going to find out what is the best way to cook a turkey, according to these people. And then we'll describe it, and maybe you'll be able to do it on Thanksgiving. You'll have a couple days. Also, we are. Uh, what is the real story of Thanksgiving? And, and, of course, that question comes from, we often hear about how, well, it wasn't really the, the pilgrims and the Indians and all this other nonsense. Well, then what was it? I, I don't know. So, what is the real story of Thanksgiving? We're going to check that out. And, again, I beg you. Thank you so much for listening. Please do forward to your friends trying to trying to make a go of the podcast, trying to turn it into a an actual uh, happening thing. So please, please share with your friends. Uh, post the links on Facebook, whatever, whatever you know. Tweet it out, whatever works for you. I cannot thank you enough for listening. And until next week, I have present for you some upbeat outro music. Thanks again.